Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to Cybersecurity Where You Are, the CIS podcast. I'm joined today by Tony Sager. Tony, how are you? Great. Thank you, Sean. Good awesome. to be back. Well, Tony, today we're talking about um, a topic I had previewed in a previous podcast about artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. You know, where the two shall meet, how the two shall enhance one another, or uh, where it could be a detriment uh, in some cases. So what we wanted to do was really review those concepts and think about what it actually means in cybersecurity in terms of the um, the element of where cybersecurity has that positive effect, can approach cybersecurity maybe from not necessarily a different perspective, but can enhance current capability. And then where we see thoughts of that moving into in the future, where potentially we could see um, AI frameworks from one particular nation versus another from a defense attack methodology. So, Tony, really wanted to start with you uh, in, in this area and thinking about, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but when I go to conferences and when I talk to vendors, everything is AI enabled, machine learning integrated, and we've, we've been doing this for years. And in some cases, true. And in some cases, I think that may be a little misleading in some cases. But I want to get your thoughts on uh, what you've seen currently in the industry uh, with the utility and use of AI uh, in cybersecurity. Yeah, it's certainly taken an uptick here recently, right, with, um, you know, the sort of popularizing, you might say, through uh, chat GPT and other other uh, sort of emerging technologies. And, you know, and I, just for for context, I dabbled a bit in uh, in the early days of AI and what were back, known back then as expert systems, if you remember that, uh, Sean, and rule-based, you know, and there were a lot of use cases where it sort of made sense and where the action was and things like medical diagnosis or uh, um, sort of structured conversations, you might call them, right? And, and uh, but, you know, every every couple of years was going to be the year of breakthrough and it was always going to be a couple of years, you know, there's a lot of things like that in technology, but, but there's definitely something happening now that is both, I think, uh, advancements, but also uh, popularizing, right, the notion. And, um, you know, some of this you might see is a, as a natural reaction to, I think, you know, one of our basic themes at CIS, right, is that defenders are overwhelmed, right? It's not the lack of information. It's the overwhelming volume of either repetitive or not useful or contradictory information. And, and so it's pretty clear we need different ways to, you know, from a defensive perspective, kind of make sense of it all, connect those dots and, you know, figure out what's going on. And again, consistent with what we say at, at CIS, you know, there, there there might be millions of attacks happening every moment, but but they're rarely unique, right? Oh, there's a lot of repeat activities. And these are, you know, signs of an area that lends itself to both large-scale automation and a kind of a data-driven, you know, maybe machine learning-based approach to say, how much of that can I um, uh, uh, 
use as a, I'll say, sort of a, an architecture design technique, right? You know, you, you'd like to say, in theory, you'd like to save humans for human-worthy work and let machines help us with this sort of large-scale, messy business that, that we've always had in cybersecurity. So so there is something happening. I think there's a lot of excitement about it. And, you know, the uh, one of the, the lessons of my career is uh, never underestimate the power of cheap or free. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> something creeps in and, see, and oh, chat TV, look, it's making mistakes and it sounds, there's some silly things and there's playing with it. But that's usually the opening that gets people's attention and then starts to build momentum and interest and investment in uh, more sophisticated, you know, more more complex problems. So, so uh, you know, it's an area that I know you're watching carefully and that, that I would say I'm doing the same. Yeah, absolutely. I think also, um, respectfully, our listeners as well. We uh, had put a post on LinkedIn doing a survey and was looking to see, you know, what uh, types of topics. And ChatGTP, uh, as you mentioned it, Tony, was uh, quite popular uh, in terms of um, we nearly had 1,400 total votes and 55% of those were looking at ChatGTP. And I I think it's important, as you mentioned, it's that – velocity and it's that attraction to the underlying system and its capability. I, I, you know, I was reading a, an infographic and it was, uh, you know, how long did it take these respective companies? I, I think it was either a million or 10 million users of a respective system. So, you know, Netflix is on there, Facebook is on there and, you know, they're measured in years and uh, on months and literally chat GTP is measured in weeks. And so, as you mentioned, you know, that um, attention and the uh, really the utility in that space, I think, has opened up new opportunities. I think it's, you know, with OpenAI and uh, Microsoft's investment. Um, I just recently, recently signed up for a, a dev program with Bing in terms of the integration of, uh, you know, the chat GTP element into that. So on the wait list. Uh, so hopefully we'll get that. But it's such a fascinating technology and I've also seen, you know, applications of um, how it, you know, in terms of response is uh, really very, very good. You know, we, I've seen, you know, some of the, you know, the podcasts and the YouTube videos and uh, talking about, you know, is this the end of developers? Literally, I'll just type what I want into this and say, you know, produce this in Python. Uh, you, you know, create me this underlying function and up it pops and perfect, you know, copy and paste. So um, instead of my practice of going to Stack Overflow, I can now ask ChatGTP and uh, respectfully hopefully get the uh, correct answer. And and I think in some cases with ChatGTP, it looks as if there's a thought that it's a disruptor. You know, it's one of these disruptive technologies that's going to come in and change the landscape. It's going to look to uh, integrate. And in some cases, you know, the originators of ChatGTP are, are, you know, looking at the applications and the data sets that it has been basically taught or it's learning from and continues to evolve uh, in respect to its learning and capability in some form or use. I'm sure there's reinforcement learning where it's, you know, taking the input, again, in its beta mode and in, in its research that uh, I'm sure those behind the scenes are taking that telemetry and um, conditioning the underlying system. It also reminds me, Tony, I'm not sure if you, you would, uh, saw, uh, saw this um, this work, but it was um, IBM's Watson was playing Jeopardy. 
and it was, um, you know, going through answering questions, but not in the form of a question. And as it saw others answering in that format, it changed its behavior based on the stimuli of being in that respective competition. So again, a reinforcement. No, you got the answer correct, but you didn't form it in, you know, the form of a question. And then it was able to adapt. And I think that's what we're seeing here is the adaptation of such a technology is then a force multiplier for its integration because then it's able to react. It's not the same input process output. That input changes in the underlying processes. Um, and again, I use Evolve, uh, and I, I, not to uh, want to bring too, men, too much thought to you know a Terminator-esque type situation of AI taking over and evolving to that general artificial intelligence, but certainly in its approach, to answering questions and the stimuli that it responds to and if it gets feedback in that space. I think it's a, uh, you know, a value that we've not seen, but machine learning brings to the table and you apply that, uh, you know, in the context of cybersecurity, I think that is a very, very powerful combination. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And there's, um, you know, what, what you described was, you know, you might call the virtuous, uh, cycle here, right? You're, yes. Uh, so that's why I said never underestimate the power of cheap. You know, it, it sort of gets its in and it's popular, it's accessible, right? Anyone can sort of play with it and it invites experimentation, then investment and then growth. And then, you know, and these things really, you know, in the early days of the internet, we were so thrilled. I remember that. I, I remember it clearly. I came back from a, I was a temporarily loaned out to Sandia Labs in the early nineties. And I came back to NSA and one of our bright uh, young IT guys pulls me aside, says, take a look at this. You know, I grew up in networking and so forth. So, you know, was familiar with sort of a government, but he, we were, as I recall, we were sort of loosely wandering through the card catalog of a university in Germany or something, right? And he happened to speak German and, and we were, and I'm looking at this going, wow, this is amazing. Like this is just there, right? We, we have access. And it was so, uh, it just tempted you to search, right? To find, to start to you know, so instead of, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when my dad brought home a set of encyclopedias to our house and we thought we were like the kings of information, you know, didn't have to trek down to the library or, or whatever to to look things up. And then this idea of it sort of being at your desktop and your fingertips, you know, uh, virtually. And, and it opened up then this experimentation, which invites more uh, investment, uh, more creative uses. And it just builds upon that. So maybe we're at that early stage here where we're really sort of thing that. I will share with you that um, one of the places I try to watch on is, uh, uh, you know, if you're looking for early adopters, one of the places to look is always around criminality. You know, there's a certain, uh, I, I tell people, if you want to see capitalism in action in cyber defense, don't study the defenders, study the attackers. You know, there's a certain Darwinian capitalism efficiency, right, that you watch happening in criminality. Uh, one reason is because they're criminals, but it's because their sort of motivation is, uh, in some sense, more pure, right? They, you know, they, so they're going to find tools. But what you see is things like specialization, you know, new tools. You see the, the, the breaking up of the chain into you know, the reconnaissance, the tool makers, the, the um, uh, monetizers, you know, and, uh, you know, only the strong can survive, right? And you see marketplaces of stolen goods and stolen information. And, and so, yeah, there's, you know, there's the opportunity there, right? And, you know, you're a pro at this. We all have a chuckle at the, um, you know, the phishing email with a little sur accidental Cyrillic in there or the misspellings or the, you know, these sort of crude um, things that still have some amount of payoff, 
that that you know people can't spot the the uh, but the, but there are signs that we've trained people to look for now right bad grammar and you know uh, all, all that kind of stuff and imagine if all that were cleaned up right which is well within reach of technology sort of a cleanliness of the grammar sprinkled with references that are unique to you you know that are in the context that would be attractive to you as a victim and i think you could see you know you could see a lot of things happening there that you know are really about scaling cost effectiveness uh, and so forth. And so you, you might see a lot of early adoption on the criminal side. And I think people are, are seeing and speculating about that. And, um, you know, it often takes a little longer for defense and, and, you know, criminals aren't so much bothered by the law, right? That's just a, that's just a speed bump. But we worry about things like, you know, um, uh, privacy and, and uh, regulatory oversight and all these, you know, so it's, it's uh, occasionally natural that technology adoption can be a little slower on the defensive side. So I think all that uh, is, really speaks to this you know, get an opportunity of this in front of us. And I think also, you know, having grown up in this business and you've, you know, you've had great experiences too, Sean. I mean, it, you know, it's sort of an unspoken secret of our business, right? There's a lot of grunt work in our business. There's a lot of messy <clears throat> data and reformatting and moving and, you know, just getting to the point where humans can add value in terms of analysis and, and sort of this, you know, humans as the integration engine and correlation. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, having run watch centers and been, been a part of that, that is just, frankly, you know, is ripe for uh, scalability, right? Is ripe for a sort of a, a learned environment that, that both learns the environment, right? The, the data, the systems, but also the preferences of the human to drive it, you know? And, you know, we, we've worked around people that are like awe-inspiring in terms of their ability, for example, to spot malware, right? To do the and you just think, how do I amplify these people? You know, what is it they know? And it's hard to get your hands on it, right? They just have this amazing intuition. So, so two points, you want to maximize their time spent on use of their gift, minimize the time spent on the grunt work of moving data and reformatting and it, making it available and pulling stuff together. And you also want to find a way to, to try to capture some of their intuition, right? That, you know, could a system learn from them to scale, I mean, you know, if we if we thought of this this whole business of we don't have enough people in the workforce and we need a gazillion more cyber ninjas, you know, if we think of that as a purely as a um, I don't know if you call it input side or whatever, you know, more human beings trained in traditional ways to do more work, we'll probably never get there. You know, we have to have more people, but we also need a way to scale their output, right? Scale their work dramatically. And so we're not going to get there through sort of human being power, traditional teaching kinds of things. So, so yeah, there, there's there's uh, opportunity there again for for that. And I think uh, it bears watching because, you know, I, I really believe our business does have some interesting targets uh, that are they're not easy, but they're bounded enough that you could put kind of. Um, you know, I, I got involved in, uh, many years ago in things like specification-driven programming. Does that ring a bell? Uh, you know, oh, the yes. idea is that you'd write at a higher level language, right? And there will, there will be a mathematical model that would translate uh, sort of the specification into, you know, and eventually into runnable code. And of course, the idea was to amplify the, the work of programmers, but it also you could enforce rulemaking kind of all the way down the stack, right? And and the the places that I was familiar with that where you could make progress there had to be pretty well bounded problems. You know, um, the production of software in a particular context. And I, I can't explain the context, but it was for very 
I'll say understood kind of problem, not easy problems, but understood in terms of the properties that you would want both input output, but also of the the uh, action, right? It, it, it preserves things like separation of data without asking a human to do that, you know, and so that protected against memory errors without without asking a human to have to do that. And so, so you know, there that just feels like there are, are plenty of interesting problems within our space that could um, could lend themselves to this. I think it'll take some time to sort sort through that, but. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm watching with some excitement to see where, where that might be true. Absolutely. No, I, I, and again, um, I love the topics. I, I think, again, the adversarial mindset to use capability in a way that, uh, you know, is completely the hacker mindset in a lot of cases. And I see that here with um, the utility of experimentation. Right. It is there's a new technology. We want to play around, see what it can do. And absolutely to your point where we get into, uh, you know, chat GTP writing emails with specific context and focus on this particular subject and, you know, delineate that. And it being, you know, uh, a very well written is, is, you know, that takes out of the realm of the, the bad um, phishing emails to those that now, you know, we're going to have to run through um, necessarily algorithmic processes to look and see whether this was machine generated. And then when we get to the, you know, ultimately here with ChatGTP and, um, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, passing the Turing test uh, in terms of that it's, uh, you know, it's uh, interaction with respective humans is I can't tell the difference between ChatGTP and somebody else. And, um, you know, we've seen um, a number of uh, utilities in that space and experimentation, uh, again, writing the phishing emails, um, you know, this imposter element of, uh, you know, writing from a specific viewpoint and being able to tailor that through uh, different methods of language. And again, the semantics that it's able to use and actually very well apply in this space is, is excellent. I mean, I was, uh, you know, playing around with it and uh, I was saying, you know, explain to, uh, my daughter happens to be 13. So I said, explain to a 13 year old what, uh, you know, we were doing something I was explaining to her uh, about uh, the uh, post-quantum uh, cryptography. Uh, again, one of those natural subjects you talk to a 13-year-old well, yeah. about. You have some interesting father-daughter talks there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was mentioning that, and it was because of uh, some research that had come out. And uh, we've got some post-quantum work to do. It was while I was doing that research. I said, just look at this. And I, you know, and she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I was like, okay. Well, here's another application. Let's explain that down. Is there a layer of abstraction that it removes so that learning is more palatable? Uh, and I think uh, as we move into different eras and, you know, we could be, we're in the data era right now. I think we're going into the AI era. Then I think we're into the quantum era. And, I, you know, these are coming up very, very fast. And so our errors are, you know, uh, not very long periods of time um, compared to what they used to be with uh, industrial revolutions and whatnot. But now... Using that and as a learning tool, as an understanding of, um, you know, respective concepts. And, you know, I'd even seen, and to, to your point again, um, Tony, from a, a really criminal perspective, there was an approach that I'd seen where um, a request was made of, of the AI to, you know, write malware in order to bypass these respective controls. And it, you know, comes up ethically, we're not, a, you know, this system is not going to produce that for you. But you ask the question in a different way, 
and not use the word malware in these terms, it, you know, it generates and executes that which I'll take and then I apply nefariously with uh, representatively, I'm using uh, good intentions or, uh, you know, not uh, offensive language and offensive I'll use in the offensive security side, not in terms of offensive to the, uh, to the listener. Um, but being able to do that is uh, quite incredible and seeing some of that element demonstrated is it, it does lead us to a point where um, there's elements of control. I think there's elements of uh, understanding representatively what it is doing in terms of its generation. So it looks at, you know, where do we apply responsibilities, this open AI to say, you know, you should know when a request comes in to bypass this respective control, that that's not done um, necessarily for good intentions. However, I could be a penetration tester with very good intentions following an ethical framework saying, well, this is something I need to do to test the underlying security of those representative systems. I'm red teaming in this space, so I'm doing it for an ethical purpose. But you know, how are we supposed to delineate that and utilize this power, which does in some cases, and I use the word abstraction here, and, and you know, we could you know go to, through object orientation in terms of programming, but looking at abstraction here to take. Um, and I'll use a term, uh, maybe a little faux pas, but the script kitty has now been empowered with an ability to have originality in their work, even though they've not gone through the process of learning necessarily an underlying language, its concepts and uh, its syntax. That has now, I think, empowered more people to enter the space um, with good or bad intentions. And I think we have to weigh that from a risk perspective. And, uh, you know, these technologies can certainly take off. And, um, you know, where's the element of control? And I'm not sure that necessarily maybe it's been thought of. Again, uh, you know, th there may be safeguards in play that I'm not aware of. Um, but to date, uh, you know, in those experiments that I've mentioned to you from from others using ChatGTP, there's it's an interesting element because I can see all the vast amount of access it's going to give to um, you know users. Uh, representatively, you know, it, it's again being loose with terminology, but for some other search engine providers, it's a killer because it's you know I'm I'm referencing I'm getting information in a different format than just representatively links to pages. I'm having it translated and given to me in a format that I request, like um, representatively explain to a 13-year-old these uh, concepts. You know, it's a different way. It's a different interface to, to gather information. Uh, what do you think, Tony? Well, I think, you know, that that um, this, this whole notion, again, this sort of uh, force multiplier or amplifier, you know, there, I mean, there's, there's incredible power here to think about things like that. So, you know, I gave the example of sort of the, the early days of the search engines, right? We were so thrilled that we could see all this and, and yes, we got the gazillion links, right? And, and what we were doing was using human beings as an integration engine to pull all that together. And uh, because the, you know, to do otherwise was sort of beyond uh, uh, reach. And now we have the ability to build this, layer of abstraction you talked about, right? Which sort of does that uh, integration and can provide some, you know, in best case, sort of a human understandable, say abstract or summary or, you know, pre of the, you know, of something that's really important and, and really interesting. And, you, you know, you and I both know, that, I mean, the amount of time we spend just trying to establish things, right? Uh, facts and background information or to learn about a new topic that suddenly is hot 
is extraordinary. And so anything that could help us get there, I think is, um, you know, certainly has potential. I'll say the, the flip side is, so we, you know, we often think about efficiency, uh, greater reach, you know, for, for purposes, good or bad, but how about inefficiency? So I will, uh, I'll offer, you know, my early days at back at the uh, agency were around software analysis, you know, looking for zero days, looking for flaws and so forth. And again, uh, uh, one thing I will share with you, um, how, how difficult that is, right? If you're counting humans to detect uh, nuanced uh, flaws in software that were planted there by a smart person, that's a pretty risky area, right? It's hard for humans. If you let someone manipulate part of the development process, which is one of my lessons, uh, you know, a human is your last line of defense. You don't want to get there because it's just, it's so hard to, to figure that out. And it's also easy to manipulate the human analyst, overload them, flood them, give them a few nuggets to find and they're happy and their boss is happy. So this, you know, the, in addition to the sort of simplifying, making the, the malware sort of cleaner, better, more efficient, more tempting, you, you have the ability to sort of manipulate on the other end, right? Through flooding, through obfuscation, through indirection and, and do it at sort of in a way that is uh, very low or no extra cost. It doesn't, you know, you can make it much harder and manipulate kind of the system and the things that we put in place to try and detect these problems, uh, knowing that it's actually, you know, if you have a human on the other end, right, your goal is to frustrate them, um, send them down the wrong alley, make, make them feel like they've done something when they haven't and so forth. So, so I think that's that's another uh, part of this here. But the, uh, the other area that's related to that, where I think I'd love to see progress is I'll call it consistency. So again, you live in a world of oversight and audits and, you know, the, the, intersection between technology and policy and all that. And um, you don't have to name names or even smile, Sean, but I mean, you, you know, a lot of times the outcome, for example, of an assessment or an audit is highly dependent upon the individual that does it. And boy, you'd love to see more consistency there, right? That is, why is it like artwork? Why is it, you know, so unique to the individual when you have a, for example, a single security framework or a you know, a common lexicon or whatever, you know, what's because there are so many vague, you know, human written terms to interpret and you know, so much going on in there that uh, is, is left for the reader to figure out. And that, that's true in the law. That's true, I think, in regulation and, and uh, in oversight. And, you know, again, it was an early lesson for me in my career. I said that the, when I became a supervisor, I said, my most important decision is to who to, who to assign to an analytic task. Because if I want to, you know, if I assign an algebraist, I get an algebraic solution to the problem. If I, if I if assign a statistician, you know, I get a statistical answer to the problem. And what became quickly out of scale, you know, I grew up in an environment where we, we'd analytically look at things, but we had like a person or two, a senior technical person who knew the history of every successful and unsuccessful attempt to analyze a problem. And he would say things like, it's pop out of his head, like, you know, we haven't looked at this class of problem in, in several years, but there's been some mathematical breakthroughs over here that might make, you know, a new approach possible. Let's go back and take a look at this. He was able to sort of juggle, you know, history, technology, analytic um, insight into strategies. And it was like, wow, that was really amazing, you know, because one person could put that in their head. And then the whole network problem emerged and exploded, and it became clear no one could keep all that in their head. 
you know, that was kind of a grab bag of you know, who's available to work on something became the order of the day. So again, you, you know, you're asking a lot of humans today, right, to try and pull all that together. And so the, the ability to to say, you know, would a, a new thought over here affect an older result there? This is a huge quantum issue, right? You know, a breakthrough here means, well, wait a minute, we made all these decisions in good faith in the past, which of these decisions don't look so smart anymore with new information, right? So that kind of, that's a really hard analytic problem that, that, that requires lots of data and lots of insight. And again, beyond the range, I think, of human beings today, you know, individually to, to pull off. So now that says you have the data to train, right? That you can sort of pull all that together. But I, I think the, my feeling is it, it doesn't have to be perfect, just close enough to direct us again, to, to bring humans to where they are most effect, efficient and um, able to turn their considerable you know, creativity to, towards these problems. But the, if they're drowning in the data and the history and you know, can't pull it all together, then they never get to that, to that point. So it's a, you know, trying to map this back to the, the, the kind of uh, experiences I had from, from early, I think like, wow, this could really be amazing. And uh, sort of recreate that ability when, when a, a human or two could understand that. Definitely. Entire domain. Yeah. No, I mean, it's an interesting concept and, and prospect for future um, initiatives, really. Because I think, and, and to your point, Tony, we've seen, you know, we've got, um, I think it's kind of the, the crescendo of bringing together scaled compute capability, the management and gathering of data to allow these things to, so these large language models to be built in a lot of cases. And we, we've, you know, kind of hit a, a very unique point where it's, um, oh, I need access to data. No problem. Here you go. Here's as much as you can gather in order to effectively train a representative model. And you know, I if I'm if I remember correctly, I think it was um, Chat uh, GTP three Chat GTP. I think around five million dollars to train the underlying uh, system with respect to data, and, and, and obviously there's an underlying investment in that space that we've, um, you know, who's willing to bear that cost for ultimately the future of, well, we've developed technology and it can integrate, it, it's representatively machine learning and can be applied in these spaces. Um, you know, you look at the Microsofts, the larger organizations that can afford to, to um, invest and, and uh really create an underlying infrastructure that leads us to that space where we then converge. And to, to your point, you know, it, it's the, the modern um, cybersecurity professional is now, um, you know, versed in data, versed in cloud capability, on-prem networking, um, threat, um, in threat intelligence, both threat methodology and the underlying intelligence of respective groups, risk management, um, projectized approaches to applications, um, uh, respectfully building a new fog of more in a lot of cases uh, for uh, your, uh, I think, most famous uh, piece. I, I, again, I, I, I have to, I, at some point, I've got to pay you for every time I reference it because it's it just phenomenal. But it's, it's those layers then that, um, and then ultimately now let's throw on, you know, a, an idea of conceptualizing quantum in the space, which, you know, from what we see from ones and zeros to change now to qubits and to think of uh, really the physics of the underlying environment differently 
it is, uh, you know, uh, it takes an agile mind in order to keep all that in play. And then, you know, throw in, um, if you want to representatively understand the mathematics or the algorithms behind encryption schemes and the cryptography that's applied in representative systems, that the layers become, you know, you get into specialization to your point, but then also looking at expert systems to say, I don't need to keep this in my head anymore. I can have, a, you know, the dependency now is to reference material that can inform me at the point that I need it. I can then represent that information and really forget about it. You know, it's kind of, uh, I hearken it to um, uh, the college degree and those classes, you know, you, you're cramming for the exam and once the exam's done, well, that information no longer exists because the relief is gone and also is the information. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> Brain so, is now empty. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it, it, it then moves into that space that I think there's, uh, and we've heard this before, I think, in, you know, with uh, search and just access to, uh, you know, all of human knowledge in, in a lot of cases is we, we're less dependent on ourselves and our own memory in order to, um, uh, you know, assimilate that information and we're dependent on the technologies. And I think in this case that accelerates uh, some of that to a level, but fairly enough, we're in a way more complex environment with more variables than we've ever seen that we have to consider as part of this approach. And we representatively need help and to automate some of this capability and offload that cognitive uh, load from ourselves onto, you know, these representative systems. Let me, yeah, let me ask you a question sort of from the perspective of the job that you have, right? So one of our, you know, we have notions today of how do I have confidence in a system? And a lot of that was about historically about control. Yeah, I know the vendor. I can inspect the source code. I know the algorithms that were invented, or I'm sorry, implemented. The uh, developers were trusted or security cleared or whatever your model happens to be. And so now, now we're you know now we're uh, the machine is learning, right? So it's not following you know what we think of as a traditional um, uh, algorithmic approach to things. And, and of course one of the lessons of history is whatever technology appears will be attacked, will be undone, manipulated, you know, abused in lots of different ways. And yet you're in, still in the, going to be in the business of creating confidence, right? Do we have confidence in our IT? Is the board confident? Uh, can our partners be confident? We're protecting their interests when they share data with us and all that. So this whole issue, how will we have confidence and how will we explain confidence, right? The explainability argument around a lot of the AI stuff, I think is a big issue. And any thoughts from the perspective though of, you know, you're the guy that sort of has to answer that uh, on our behalf. And then- yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point um, because in a lot of cases, and I know you use this term of, of the wizards behind the scenes that then, you know, that, that they're doing wizardry. And I think in, in our case, um, it becomes a black box of where we're, uh, not seeing some underlying processes. I'll give you a perspective that I've I've used in confidence. It's what I call distributed uh, confidence in respective systems. So we work through multiple processes. Our vendors, you know, are numerous. It's not like it used to be where I could I have a handful. I have a personal relationship with those representing the organization in a lot of cases. That you know is no longer the case. That you know the cybersecurity vendor market is. Uh, continues to explode. It's uh, uh, it expands like the universe. It's never going to end. And you know, you you utilize vendor risk management, and you look at vendor risk services to provide you in a level of assurance. And it's also a case, Tony, that we use um, attestation and certification. 
Um, if you've got then SOC 2 ISO 27001, that gives me a level of assurance when integrating uh, said product and service. When we look at encryption and other underlying schemes, I'm, I'll fall back to a FIPS 140-2. Can I find you on there? And I've you know distributed that responsibility elsewhere, but integrate the results of that as a results-based approach. So when I'm asked about you know what's the confidence in our controls, I have to break down a control into its subcomponents and say representatively we have a vendor here. Here's the audit metric that I use to make sure that the effectiveness of that respective control. That control integrates these several elements and. I'm pulling those from different perspectives. So it's, I think it's got as less to understanding and more memorization, raw memorization of, oh, I talked with Bill, Bill's got this software development process and uh, we, we trust, you know, as an inherent trust because he, he allows us to see and work with him. In some cases, you know, from a vendor perspective, it's closed. It's, you know, these are uh, closed source in terms of uh, representative code in some cases. In some cases, it's open source. But then you get into another element where I'll then trust the static analysis and dynamic analysis tool, its results, and then it gives it to me. So I'm distributing the requirement there. And you know, ultimately, I'm dependent on that vendor doing the right thing in terms of addressing code vulnerability and proper practice, obviously, within um, uh, programming, relying upon that, getting the results of that vulnerability scanning. Um, uh, you know, updating my necessary signatures in the vulnerability scanning range, but really a trust in terms of the vulnerability scanner is working. So again, representing to a vendor, I'm really distributing in that way because the complexity has got to such, Tony, and it is truly a fog of more that is um, the one tool we used to use uh, back in the day um, has now got us to a point, and, and I will go back in the day, we're still playing with the same issues we had back in the day because those haven't been solved patching just say i always use patching as the, the the you know the example there but representatively i've now um opened up necessarily because of the complexities of business the business objectives generating value has required us to enter into different spaces and so therefore it's um you know this element of third fourth party trust relationships that we're trying to evaluate but then using frameworks and the best way to do that evaluation and then measuring control effectiveness. Yeah. A couple of points I'll take. That. Sure. That's a really great explanation, Sean. And, and you know, I'd say um, uh, highly mature, right? That, that many organizations aren't to that point yet. And what you illustrate is this shift of uh, the notions of trust and confidence. So I grew up in a world where trust was a binary condition, right? You were you're, you're security cleared or you're not, you're a trusted contractor or you're not. And a lot of that was about personal contact relationships or history and so forth. And you know, trust today, and this is the basis of zero trust in these modern architectures, trust is a dynamically calculated condition. You know, you and you gave the example, right? None, none of those is a perfect answer. So you've taken numerous measurements, right? The, the sort of there's a NIST distinction between measurement and the metric. Uh, measurements are sort of these things I can pull from, you know, uh, some some sort of artifact of a system or some output of a test or whatever. But the metric involves at the end of the day a value judgment where you compose a number of measures and you look at that, right? And your job is to generate confidence for the leadership of the company so that we can operate as a business, right? In the modern, complicated environment, and I think it's a great illustration of the that approach and not getting hung up on the pass fail test. You know, too much of our industry is still like you passed or you didn't. 
well, no, the point is we're we're all struggling. It's it's where where are we and are we on the right path? And can I, with confidence, make a business decision, which I recognize could be imperfect. But if I wait for perfect, I have no business, right? I'm I'm out of business, and so, so I think that's a a, a wonderful, you know, exposition of of that kind of complexity and how you pull those things together. And it it doesn't take away from sort of classical approaches, right? You still need a control framework. You still need a you know management processes that are well defined, documented, transparent, etc. You still need those, but their role becomes they are measurements to help you with this decision-making, right? To generate that confidence. So I think that's that's very clever. And I think that's, uh, again, um, mature, but also something that I think others could, could easily learn from. And I think mature companies have have given a lot, had a lot of thought. Yeah, that no, ways. certainly achievable. Um, I mm-hmm. think it's just integrating to get the right cadence of assessment because it's, um, like you say, as you go through measure to define a metric, the velocity of change and integration of that within an environment requires those measurements to be taken more frequently. And it's the the form of that measurement that we also need to consider because the underlying metric, and again, I, I, I use these, uh, you know, how to lie with statistics, famous book, and it's great. Yeah, you know, I can, you know, I'm, I'm doing well in this space and representatively we've uh, you know we show due diligence in terms of the measures taken actually attributable to as you mentioned that control framework because without the control framework uh, and it's funny because we've we've been doing some work on this is um, you know my roadmap to success is based on the foundational layer of practical application of a framework and that means different things to different organizations and it should there is not a one-size-fits-all in any business even in the same industry vertical even in the same organization that has multiple businesses those have to be contextualized but if we don't start with an appropriate framework the fog of more becomes well where do i start and am i going to create this myself is um you know it, it gets to an untenable task that we um in some cases, and respectfully, I think we've solved. I think ultimately the problem is, is which is the right framework for the organization and how can I contextualize it? Because I will say there's an interpretation gap that exists between defining a control and to your point with an auditor or auditee. Oh, well, I thought the control meant a doing this work. And then the auditor comes in and says, well, you've completely missed the, the essence of what that control meant. And it's, well, are you defining how I control my environment or am I doing that and you're representing that control? I mean, are you now the consultant that I'm going to use then to fix these underlying gaps? And you get into such a, um, it becomes philosophical in some cases. And then asking those same questions to a chat GTP is, you know, how is that system and where's its base of reference? Because in some cases it could be trained and be wrong. And in some cases, and I want to be sensitive here, is that it's been poisoned in terms of the representative output. So again, another vulnerability in the space is uh, the validity of training. And it's similar to the question you asked, how are we measuring that? Where's the ethical underlying pinning framework that allows that answer to be given when, you know, myself or anybody else utilizing this capability asks uh, an underlying question. So it gets into those um, 
particular areas. I, again, it's a lot simpler, you know, mathematically easy. I, I, I can tell you what works there. But when we get into the human element of understanding and uh, applying respective controls, is uh, that is up for interpretation. You can uh, wind your way around that you've implemented it the correct way with uh, necessary thoughts that uh, others, myself, me and you, would come in and say, yeah, I'm sorry, you, you, you've completely missed the, the point of the requisite control. And, you know, in some cases, it's forced you into a position that actually increases your risks versus reduce it. And uh, so it, it's that narrative that I find quite interesting. And I, you know, obviously love working with auditors. We've got some great auditors that we've worked with. And it's, um, those are interesting conversations when you talk about the nature of a control. Um, and its interpretation, because everybody has a little bit of a different opinion. Yeah, and that's you know having observed that <laughs> and been the what do they call it a target of audit or you know, <laughs> yes. victim, but but they said there's a, there's a more target of evaluation. <laughs> yes, uh, and then again, that is something that you would love to bring more consistency to, Absolutely. right? And um, you know, again, there, there's a place for human judgment. You know, one of our sort of underlying themes around the best practice stuff has been. Um, you know, like building a, a data-driven model to decide, you know, what's the security value of an individual safeguard, right? That the, the point of that is, number one, to bring rigor and repeatability, but it doesn't eliminate human judgment. I said, we just need to know where it happens and bound it, because if we can identify it, then we can argue about it, right? We can bring in, you know, that that's the healthy place for humans to debate, but all the stuff kind of leading us, you know, the data and the, you know, the sort of correlating things and all that, that you know, have an answer. We want to get that out of the way so we can get to the point where there's, you know, where is the judgment call being made? So I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm not worried that we're all going to be out of business here in the cybersecurity <laughs> world in the next couple of years, but, you know, but it, uh, I can certainly um, uh, anticipate and actually hope for significant change, right? Again, this, this sort of notion of all the grunt work and then, you know, how do we really empower humans to take advantage of their creativity and their, um, you know, their ability to see things that we haven't thought of before. And I, I'd like to see that, um, you know, really that that's a great use of technology and a great opportunity for us all to defend ourselves better. So, well, great stuff, Sean. I really, uh, you know, and I appreciate your perspective as always on the, uh, how do I make it work and how do I explain it to the board and to the <laughs> auditor? Because that's real life and I never had a real job. So I didn't have to worry about that sort of stuff. It was easy, much easier to poke holes at things. And, yes. um, then, uh, and I appreciate your, uh, the, the fog thing too. I, I have, I've had people stop. One guy stopped me in the elevator. Hey, you're the fog guy. <laughs> Whoa. Is this good or bad? Exactly. He said, no, 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 it was great. I saw your talk and, I was able to explain to my boss what the problem was. Yep. I said, well, then my, my work here is done. Thank you very much. I, I felt so proud of that moment. Absolutely. No, again, it, it, it's, it leads us to, um, and I think that's one of the elements here is the making all of this data and information palatable because it, it is received on, you know, uh, just as humans, we, we receive information differently, visual, you know, experiential, um, just raw reading or, uh, you know, listening to, to uh, this work or, or reading your work is it leads us into a space where we've, um, you know, got some unique challenges uh, and it's clearing that fog and being able to see a clear path. Um, that's really the, ultimately the challenge, but has to be done with, uh, you know, I'll say you put your con uh, your context lenses rather than contact lenses, context lenses to be able to see through that fog because without it, it's uh, 
you know, you're you're going to be stuck implementing forever. You're you're never going to get to a point that you'll see success, and your return on investment is just going to. Uh, uh, well, you're not going to see any value, unfortunately. <laughs> You'll probably see a different job. Exactly. You see value. exactly. Yes. All right. <laughs> wonderful, 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 Sean. Thanks. Always, as always, a pleasure uh, swapping ideas with you and learning from you. So I appreciate that very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Tony. Uh, so I think that brings us to then the conclusion of this particular episode. We have a lot more to talk about. So I believe um, we should be thinking about a part two here, Tony, and I'm working with some uh, other industry uh, experts to really delve down deep into some of these um, disinformation models that could be generated here, the cost of security and integration of technology, and then looking at vulnerability uh, from these uh, respective areas in terms of large language models. But with that, thank you, Tony, as always, fantastic. And thank you to the audience. Uh, Again, a recommendation to subscribe in the normal ways. And with that, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.